Well, I want to invite you to begin this morning with me by using our imaginations. I'd like you to imagine a scene that was described for me by a professor at Duke University named Richard Lisher. Imagine a man dancing with his wife shamelessly in the kitchen, whirling about. Now, why is he dancing? It's because today, the owner of a grocery store has promised him a job in two weeks. Now, does he have the job? Not completely at the moment. It's coming, but he doesn't have it now. He's actually just as broke as he has been for months. So why all the excitement in the kitchen? Well, it's because of the promise. He has a promise. I want to suggest this morning that this is the way the good news of Jesus Christ works, the gospel. When you hear the gospel, your circumstances are just the same as they have been for a long time. But if you believe that the one who issues the promise is reliable and will keep it, your life changes already, immediately, because of the promise. Now, in 552 B.C., a prophet named Daniel has a dream. At this point, he's 71 years old. He's, had, uh, he's been in exile in Babylon for 50 years. He's an old man. But in this dream, he is taken to another time and another place. He's taken to the throne room of heaven as it is. When he wakes up from the dream, his circumstances are just the same as they've been, and they are difficult circumstances there in Babylon. But his life has changed because of a promise. Let's look at that promise together in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. I'm going to invite you to read this with me. So would you please pull out your Bible or grab the black book in the rack in front of you and turn to Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, kind of in the middle of the chapter. It's on page 724 of the Pew Bible. I'd like for you, if you're able, to stand with me. Let's read God's Word aloud together as an act of worship. And uh, when we're done reading, I'll say this is the Word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Daniel chapter 7, 9 through 14. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy Word. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A steam of fire issued and flowed out from its presence. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousands times ten thousands stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion 
that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Might keep the book open as we look at this together. I just have to say, it's pretty meaningful to see this vision in a world that is plagued by shootings uh, downtown, uh, by political turmoil, disease that's spreading, and uh, we read in the papers this week, a doomsday clock that's approaching midnight. We see beasts in our day as well. But Daniel, in this vision here at the center of the chapter, seems to be listening to music. The indication of that is the indentation that the translators use to suggest that he's in verse here, that this is a, a poetic description of what he's seeing. Now, we don't know whether Dan is actually dancing or not, but we might imagine that uh, he is. What would make Daniel dance in the darkness of night before these beasts? Well, we might ask the new grocer. Uh, the new grocer, and I want to talk to you a, a, a few lessons from Daniel and the grocer. Uh, from the grocer, we'll learn about the reliability of the owner, uh, the nature of the promise, and the change in his life. These three things. So let's think about what we learn about the reliability of the owner. If the owner of a grocery store makes a promise, uh, you, you, you are inclined to believe that promise if, if you know the, the owner. If the owner is the kind of person who keeps her promise, then reality for the man and for his wife is transformed by the word of the owner. Now, we ask ourselves, how do we know someone is reliable? And I would suggest two tests. One is, have they kept their promises in the past? Uh, the history test. And the other is, how much will they give up to follow through on their commitment? This would be the cost test. What I'd like to suggest in this passage that we've just read is that the, the Lord gives Daniel an apocalyptic preview of the cross that is suggestive of the reliability of God and God's promise. We read in verse 13, Daniel says, as I watched in the night vision, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. If you look at the footnote there in verse 13, you'll see that the Aramaic, the original language, could easily be translated uh, a son of man. I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, like a son of man. Now, who is, who is this? We oftentimes think of that phrase as a phrase that communicates humility, but that's not quite right in this context. In fact, Jesus used this phrase, and when he used it before the high priest, he was killed for having done so. He stood before his uh, high priest, in the first century, and he was asked, are you the Messiah? And in Mark chapter 14, as well as other places, we read Jesus saying, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is Daniel 7, 13. He's quoting, but he's referring to himself. And immediately the priest tears his clothing and says, blasphemy. And he condemns Jesus uh, to die for it. So this is not just an expression of humility or modesty. This is an exalted 
expression. We see that in, in Daniel 7. Now, this was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. Nobody ever else called him the Son of Man, but he referred to himself throughout his life as the Son of Man. And what we see in verse 14 is that the Son of Man is a cosmic victor. Year 14, to him was given dominion and glory and kingship. This is, a, this is a coronation. This is like a military general who's come to assume his place in a kingdom, in an, in an empire. This is a cosmic victor here, the Son of Man. That, that, that's what Daniel sees. And, and we ask ourselves, but, but he's coming with the clouds. Clouds are oftentimes a symbol of the presence of God, but where is he coming from? Well, we have to back up and take a wider view of the whole chapter to understand. Verse 25 suggests this common cosmic victor is coming from a cosmic defeat. In verse 25, we read that this one is a member of a community who is given into the power of a beast. We'll talk more about the beast in a moment, but for three times a time, uh, two times and a time and a half. We would expect the number three there. He's in the power of a beast, representing evil. We think of death, uh, a tomb, maybe three days, uh, a defeat. So we have here a preview of the cross. This points us 500 years early to Jesus Christ. Jesus would tell his own disciples that, that, that he would suffer. For example, in Mark 8, 31, he says that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. See, he's claiming to be a, a victor, but to win through defeat. He's pointing to the cross. And the rest of the New Testament gives witness to this as well, that Jesus is on the throne, but he's a lamb, a sacrificed lamb on uh, the throne that he's a king who rules not with his weapons, but with his wounds. So we come back to this question, can we rely on the one who makes this promise to us in Daniel 7? And we ask the history test, I would say yes. And it's interesting uh, to think about fulfilled prophecy. Uh, this is a prophecy that Daniel makes 500 years before Jesus. Now, the date, the date of the book of Daniel is contested because many people think that Daniel couldn't possibly uh, be given the power to anticipate the future. But when you look at the prophetic works as a whole, there's so many indications that Jesus Christ is anticipated. In fact, some have said there are hundreds of specific predictions of Jesus, many of which they come 800 years before Jesus is born, but they're very specific, like the place of his birth, uh, Bethlehem, that he'd be born of a virgin, the, the nature of his life and death, that he'd be pierced through for our transgressions, describing crucifixion centuries before the torture had even been Invented. In fact, somebody said that uh, it, the, it, there are 60 highly specific prophecies. If you just took eight of those prophecies, they did the math, they worked it out. The probability that one person could have fulfilled these prophecies would be the same as if you covered the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars and walked across the state and picked one out. This, this is the history test. And as a young believer, this really helped me understand and have confidence uh, that, that God does keep his promises. We think that the cost test, here's a king who doesn't wound his foes, who rules by being wounded by them. This is a lamb 
on the throne, whose weapons are wounds, who gives his life for the world, who gives his life for you. I would say, who could you trust more than somebody who would give their life to you? Jesus says, no one has greater love than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends. See, when the owner of a grocery store makes you a promise, the first thing you ask yourself is, is she reliable? Does she have the capacity to fulfill this promise? Would she be committed enough to fulfilling this promise? And Jesus passes the test. You can trust me. And the cross is the greatest demonstration of his trustworthiness because he loves us. So uh, that leads us to the next question, which is about the nature of the promise. This is the next thing that would naturally come to the mind of the man dancing in the kitchen. Well, what is this promise that this owner makes to me? And the promise in his case is that the owner has acted decisively to make a place for him at the store. In other words, he's got a job. She's saying, you're hired. There's a place for you at my store. And then we ask, well, what is the Lord's promise to Daniel? And our answer, as we've been studying this book, is this, an apocalyptic gospel. Uh, The Lord gives Daniel an apocalyptic gospel. Now, when we say the gospel, what we mean is the good news that God has reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ. In Daniel's case, it's that God will reconcile the world to himself in in Jesus Christ. When we say apocalyptic, well, we're learning. Uh, Each week, I've added another element to our understanding of what that word apocalypse means. Uh, First, we learned that it means uncovering. The word apocalypse literally just means uncovering, to reveal something. Uh, Secondly, we see that apocalyptic literature always refers to transformation. Uh, God acts decisively from outside history to change history. And then thirdly, I want to add a a third element, and that's representation. Representation. Apocalyptic literature, and this is one that you're probably most familiar with, trades in symbols and in figures that, that aren't literal, but they represent something else. And this is a very important aspect of the gospel, representation, because God reconciles the world to himself through a human representative, a son of man, a mediator, a proxy for our race, a vicar, to use the old language from which we talk about a vicarious. If you have a vicarious relationship, you have it through somebody else. Our salvation is a vicarious salvation. comes to us through someone else. So let's step back for a minute and ask about the nature of this son of man who makes this promise to us. Is he an individual or a people? And I'm surfacing now one of the major cruxes, and this is one of the most argued over passages of Scripture in the whole of the Bible. And one of the big questions is, is the Son of Man an individual or a people? Is he a man? Like verse 13 seems to imply, the singular is used, we speak of of him, he he speaks of his kingdom. Or does the Son of Man represent a, a collective or many people, as seems to be suggested in verse 27, where we read of holy ones, Uh, or them, or their kingdom. You'll want to look at this in your small group with with more attention and time. But the answer to the question is yes, both are true. And that is just what happens with a representative. There is a single individual who represents many people. And, And this is the mystery that we're seeing showing up in Daniel's vision. Now, 
just to confirm that reading, let's look again more closely at the context and understand that all of the elements of the text are representative in a similar way. Uh, If you were to read the beginning of Daniel, you'll see the first section presents four beasts, and Daniel gets really confused, as we are too, by that, and so he asks for help. Apparently someone with a green tag, uh, an attendant, and he says, can you explain this to me? And they go back through in the second half of Daniel and explain the four beasts. So the vision in the center kind of is the fulcrum, but the drama happens on either side. And in the first half of Daniel, we get the picture of these four beasts. There's a lion who has wings like an eagle, which is a well-known figure in Babylonian art. Uh, The second is there's a bear who has ribs, three ribs in his mouth, consuming prey, presumably. Then there's a, a leper, a leopard, Uh, who has four wings and four heads uh, moving in every direction. And then finally, there's a fourth beast. It doesn't look like any animal we would know, not that the others do either, but even less recognizable, this is the fourth or indescribable beast who has iron uh, teeth, who has 10 horns, uh, one of which uh, grows uh, to be a small horn with arrogant words against God. And we go, what in the world is this? What we learn in the second half, and by the way, the best way to understand Daniel chapter seven in these four beasts is to remember Daniel chapter two uh, because they're actually part of the same section. They're all in Aramaic. uh, And the the, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built, we think that these are the same four kingdoms. The, The attendant with the green badge talks about four kings and four peoples. Uh, See, there's an element of representation. There's the Babylonian king who stands for the Babylonian people, the first empire, and then the second beast represents probably the Medes and the Persians and their king and the Greeks, Alexander the Great, and then Rome with these 10 uh, horns or 10 kings, including one that becomes the Antichrist described coming out of the sea in Revelation 13. More questions than answers today. But the point is that each of these beasts is a representative of a people, and so too with the Son of Man, who stands there for himself as an individual, but for others as a people. Daniel must say to himself as he looks into heaven that there the Son of Man is for me. He's one like a human being, just like me. So there I stand. He's my representative. He's my mediator. He's my proxy. He's my vicar. His defeat is my defeat. His victory is my victory. Where he stands, I stand in him. He's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Daniel would know what many of us don't know today, that to go directly into the presence of God would be deadly. We see what happens to the beast uh, who is consumed by fire, because God is a holy God, perfect goodness and beauty and truth and justice. And so the only way we can come before a God like this is with a representative who is likewise holy. And of course, this is the teaching of of, of Scripture, that Jesus is our representative. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's almost like a prisoner exchange. 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6 says, for there's one God, there's also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. Hebrews 9, 24, 
Christ entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So that where he stands in glory as a king, we stand in him. Well, this is quite a promise, isn't it? God has made a place for me. God has made a place for you in the throne room of heaven in Jesus Christ. I mean, that vision that Daniel has uh, of a, a world restored, uh, uh, which echoes very much of the Garden of Eden, if you think about it, where the beasts are in proper relationship to creation, where humanity is restored in the presence of God, where the human race is given dominion, a rule, and a kingdom. This could be us, the text says. In other words, it wouldn't be that big a news if I said the headline today is Jesus Christ made it to heaven. You'd be like, yeah, we expected that. The headline here is you made it to heaven. <laughs> right. I mean, come on. Prostitutes made it to heaven. Tax collectors made it to heaven. I, George Hinman, Pharisees made it to heaven. You're in. This is what, this is what the, the promise is. You see, and when the owner of a grocery store promises you a job and the owner of that store is reliable, you're there in reality. If not in actual time, chronology, you're there already. This is the nature of the promise. Which leads us finally to the change in the grocer's life. In fact, his life is already changed just by the promise. That's what the dancing is all about in the kitchen. And his wife is blushing as he dips her to the floor. He, their relationship has changed, isn't it? Here's what you need to know in the book of Daniel. I just learned this. This is fascinating. Uh, Daniel is grouped by... Um, palace narratives, the first six chapters, and then, then the second six chapters are the visions. That's not a chronological uh, arrangement. Actually, chapter seven, which we're reading right now, happens chronologically between chapters four and five. What that means is Daniel sees this vision before he goes to the lion's den. You wanna know what gives Daniel the courage to stand up before the beasts in the lion's den? It's this promise. It's the gospel. It's what we call the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we have to be careful here. Because as soon as we talk about our lives changing, we get confused pretty quickly. Let me tell you that Oxford University Press in 2015 uh, published a study on the, called the National Study of Youth and Religion. It was the largest study of youth in America ever undertaken. Very impressive study. What the researchers found is that uh, no matter where a youth Worshipped, whatever creed or confession of faith they had, that our, our youth today in America all subscribe to essentially the same religion. And they call the religion uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic means basically good people go to heaven. Therapeutic means that if there is a God, he exists to make me happy. And deism says, that if there is a God, he's taken a half step back and is absolutely uninvolved with our lives or with this world. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now they found out one other thing that was troubling and they raised the question, uh, why do our kids all have this religion? Whether they're Methodists or Presbyterians or wherever, Mormons, why do they all have this religion? It's because we have this religion. The bad news is that we, our par the parents in America have taught this to our children. 
And I wanna say that that is not the gospel. That there is no son of man in moralistic therapeutic deism. Their moralistic therapeutic deism calls you to be a better self, to work harder, to make your own way through life. But that is not the good news of Jesus Christ. No, the good news of Jesus Christ is not about what you do, it's about what he has done. And we've got to get that clear. So then the question is, well, what, what do we do? Somebody asked me after my message last week a really good question. Okay, we've, we've talked about God's transformational power, um, but what do we do? with that power. Well, the grocer helps us here. What does the grocer do? He believes the promise. He believes the promise. That's what he does. See, in that moment, even though it's two more weeks before he dons the apron, he's already a grocer. He's not a guy without a job. He's a grocer. And then what he does is he lets the promise do its work inside of him. He begins to act like a grocer. I know, his circumstances haven't changed. The landlord is still angry with him. The refrigerator is still barren. But he's dancing. He's not gonna stare at his ceiling in the middle of the night with worry. No, he's gonna sleep. In the morning, he's gonna go out back and try to find a pail he can use to carry his lunch to the grocery store in. He's gonna pull out that old brush and his old oil-stained shoes and start to buff them up. He's getting ready. He's living like a grocer. He's living like a guy who has a place already in the grocery store and it's starting to change his life. In fact, his life has already changed, but it's, the change is starting to work its way out in the way that he's living. He's dancing. Now, this is how the gospel works in our lives. This is what the apostle Paul is talking about in Colossians 3 where he says, remember we talked about this last week, you're, you have been, you, your life is hidden. He says, you've been raised with Christ. In other words, you're already in the throne room of heaven. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. There you stand already. Therefore, he says, set your mind on things above. Put to death whatever in you is earthly. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. See, this is who you already are. It's not aspirational. This is who you are. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Like when a parent says, act your age. This is what the Lord is saying of us. Act who you really are out of your belovedness, your holiness, your authority as a Christian in the throne room of heaven. This is how the gospel starts to change our lives. We believe it and we live out of it. Once you see yourself as victorious, you start to live as a winner. When the owner of a grocery store makes you a promise, it's yours already. You're already there. May take two weeks to see that with your eyes, but the dancing starts now. I wanna suggest the world needs people who know how to dance before the beasts in the night. Brothers and sisters, if you believe the promise of God in Jesus Christ, you stand right now in eternal glory. You are reconciled to God. Fear not. If you haven't heard this promise before or taken it in, understood that it's reliable and said, yes, I believe this for yourself, I urge you to make this decision today. It's all it takes to become a Christian to have all the benefits of this promise is just to hear the word of the Lord and believe it. Our mission requires all of us to say yes to Jesus in this way. We need renewal at UPC. Let us cry out to the Holy Spirit of heaven 
to awaken us to the promise of God's work in Jesus Christ. The power comes through that promise and the promise changes lives. This is what we're doing in our formational communities. We're gathering in circles around Jesus to remind one another of just how great this promise is. It's where our lives are formed inside that. It's where we begin to learn how to dance and to love and to live. It's how we join Jesus on his mission. And when our neighbors begin to see circles in their neighborhoods of people dancing in the night, they're gonna wanna join. They say, I may not hear the music yet, I may not see the band yet, but I see you and I wanna join. And they're gonna wanna ask, they're gonna wanna know where that music comes from. And that's where we're gonna tell them about the grocer's music. I wanna close this morning with a reading by a theologian named Shirley Guthrie, who gives us a good example of what we might say uh, to our neighbors, not necessarily in these words, but in our music. Dr. Shirley Guthrie writes, before you ever thought of seeking out God to ask for God's love, God sought you out and acted in self-giving love for you. Before you even considered choosing Christ and making a decision for him, Christ chose you and made a decision for you. Before you even heard about opening yourself to the freeing and renewing work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit has already been at work in your life and in the world around you. Before it occurred to you to ask for your own and the world's salvation, while you were still trapped and dead in your sin and unbelief, it already happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and is happening through the presence of the living Christ and his spirit in your life and in the world. Therefore, accept and live by this good news, not because you must, but because you may, not because you are or want to be a godly spiritual person, but because God loves, Christ died for, and the spirit comes to ungodly, worldly sinners. Not because God is soft and indulgent in dealing with sins and sinners like you, but because in Jesus Christ, God has already taken on God's self, the consequences of your sin and the sin of the whole world. Not because God will damn and punish you if you don't or pay off with all kinds of good things if you do, but out of sheer thankfulness for the loving and powerful grace of God in Jesus Christ, accept and live by this grace not because the kingdom of God cannot come unless you seek it and work for it, but because the kingdom of God is coming and is already on the way. Accept and live by it because God always has been, is, and always will be a loving and powerful, gracious God. Even in those times when you are not sure you believe and despite the massive unbelief and disobedience in the world around you. Let's pray. Thank you for making this promise to us, God, in Jesus Christ. There's nothing more that we could ever wish for. There's nothing more that we or your world needs. Help us to believe, receive, and live into it today. By the power of your Holy Spirit, in your name, amen.